Hey everyone, you're listening to Little Bit of Life Podcast with Little. This podcast is dedicated to having the real, raw, and the occasional ridiculous chats about everything that we seem to think but don't say. Very little is off limits. Sit back, enjoy, and let's get started. Today's episode is sponsored by Bella Sante Health, founded locally here in Tucson, Arizona in 2019 by a group of medical professionals and athletes. That's why they have a scientific approach to health and a commitment to excellence in everything that they do. They utilize 99.9% pure hemp isolate grown in Colorado. With less than 0.3% THC, their CBD products are legal in all 50 states for every need you could possibly have. Make sure to check them out in the bio for your free consultation. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to yet another amazing episode of Little Bit of Life Podcast with Little. As the intro always has said in my podcast, we talk about everything that people seem to think but don't say, everything that seems to be off the table or so-called taboo of, yeah, we think this and maybe this is happening, but do we really want to talk about it? And we're here to talk about this topic today about how convictions can actually lead to consequences. And what does that mean? Well, we're getting into it. Are we touching the subject? Absolutely. Wrongful convictions within the military. And how do we prevent them? What do we do? Do we talk about it? Do we not talk about it? Wrongful convictions in the United States are things that no one likes to talk about right now. And as a result, this is a fundamental problem that's often being ignored and just swept under the rug. So I have an amazing guest with me today. His name is Arvis, and he's going to share his story, but also not only how this has changed his life and consequences later, but how he's helping other people. So Arvis, welcome in. How are you doing today? Thank you, Tabitha. Uh, Feeling good. It's a nice sunny day here in Springfield. So uh, I want to thank you so much for having uh, me on today. Um, I realize that this is a controversial topic and not a lot of people have the courage to address it. So I want to thank you for doing that, and I also want to thank your listeners for taking time out of their day to listen to what we have to say. Absolutely. I want to thank you in return before we get started into this topic, because it's something that you are very vulnerable, but it's also something that you're very passionate about at the same time. So it's very difficult to come on and discuss this topic as a whole, but also to be the voice for other people that are not able to speak up on their own. So thank you for doing this for everyone involved. You're welcome. You're very welcome. Thank you for that. So let's kind of just dive in. This is what we do on this podcast. We get started really quick. We're off and running. It's a marathon for our listeners. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, where are you from? What what brings you on today? Um, and then just kind of the backstory on you. Okay, perfect. Uh, so my name, Arvis Owens. I'm originally from a place called Beaumont, Texas. A Texan cowboy fan. Love that, love that whole area. Uh, I'm married with two children. Uh, I got twin boys. They're they're both 12 now. And the, the reason we're, we're on today is to talk about uh, false accusations and wrongful convictions. Um, and so j- just to address the audience a little bit, I understand that some people who he- listen today, they're going to be very skeptical, right? You have others who are going to be very reluctant to mm-hmm. say anything or hear anything negative about the military. You're going to have others who, uh, frankly, they're, they're going to find any other reason to, to, to not believe it. And what I would ask is that they set aside that for just a second. And, 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 and here's why. In the, in the military, when we join, uh, there's things that we like and there's things that we love. But just like any organization, you know, there's things that we, we don't enjoy that, that are not great about it. 
And so what we're going to talk mm-hmm. about here today is um, my background a little bit, helping other people who've been falsely accused and wrongly convicted in the area of sexual assaults. And I think it's amazing that we discuss um, false sexual assault allegations. When you hear the words sexual assault, it's this almost immediate shutdown in regards to, I don't like those words. Those make me uncomfortable. I'm out. So I really encourage listeners, like he said, to have an open mind. This is what this podcast is and will always be about. My views and my opinions on this topic may be completely different as my guest. It may be completely different as my viewers, but we're all here to talk about topics that need to be discussed. They need to be at the focal point. And it's us listening to each other, hearing each other, because those are two completely different things. And you might come out of this actually learning something about yourself of, hey, I came into this with you know either a positive or a negative mindset, but I'm leaving with so much information that now... I'm interested to go do the, the research. I'm interested to go and look into this more. And that's what we're here for. Perfect, Tabitha. Thank you for that. So um, in the military, um, how how old were you when you joined? What branch did you go into? Kind of what was your story within the military? Because um, I know that that's kind of where we're going to get started. Okay, so I started out, I was in Navy Junior ROTC in high school. So in ninth grade at around 14 or so, um, I graduated from high school in 1991 And then I uh, pursued my education at the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. Um, I was commissioned uh, in 1995, May of 1995. I eventually worked my way into the supply corps, the logistics field within the military, uh, various deployments. I served overseas in Japan for a couple of years, deployed with the 31st Mew uh, to the Persian Gulf, to East Timor, things like that. Uh, Various assignments inside the United States deployed on the East Coast uh, on a destroyer, uh, also to the Persian Gulf, Uh, went to various parts of the world, really enjoyed my time in the military. Um, So that's kind of my background. I was um, at my last duty station. I'd been in uh, about 18 years. I was uh, here in uh, Northern Virginia, Springfield. Um, Is it okay if I say the agency or should we... Mm -hmm. Okay, so it was the the Defense Logistics Agency at Fort Belvoir. I was there. That was my last duty station. It was a joint uh, duty assignment. Mm -hmm. When you joined the military, and I always ask this because on my social media platforms, I am a huge advocate for veterans, um, all branches of the military, because I come from a military background. Did you come from a military background in your family, or was it just always something you were passionate to go into? You, You know what? I didn't. I didn't have a lot of military in my family. It was more of, I did the the NJROTC in high school. And I really fell in love with the mentality of our, our uh, a commander there. And we had a master chief and E9 and, and they were wonderful. And they had the, the best stories, Tabitha. And they would talk about going to different parts of the, of the world. And at that time, the model of the Navy was, it's not just a job, it's an adventure. And so I'd been mm-hmm. into like one of their houses and I saw, you know, this, this beautiful furniture from the Philippines and various parts of the world. And literally when you go into someone's house, especially a Navy or Marine Corps person, uh, you, you hear the story, you know, here's a, here's a Yadro that came from Spain. And, and so you just get really excited about the story. So the adventure is what really attracted me to the Navy. And the reason I ask that is because I am sure I'll probably get a lot of questionable opinions in regards to, wow, like you're such a huge veteran supporter. So if you support veterans, why are you doing this? And it's that exact reason. I am a veteran supporter. And this encompasses 
everyone. And that's why we're doing this because I come from a family that has a military and veteran background. And it's something that this is this is happening more probably than you think it is. And that's why we're here today because we all have a passion for the, for those that serve our country. So thank you, first off, for everything that you've done for our country and putting your life on the line with that passion that you had at such a young age. Thank you, Tabitha. I really appreciate that. And and, and I'll ser- share something I've shared with some, some other folks who've had the same concern about listening. And I go, I have uh, acquaintances who served in Vietnam who were... Uh, who were subjected to Agent Orange. And so when they initially had a challenge, people pushed back on that. They, they really strongly pushed back and they had to fight. And some of them, unfortunately, are no longer with us because it took so long to bring attention to that issue because a lot of people just didn't want to hear about it. They wanted to, to wash their hands from the Vietnam conflict. So they really mm-hmm. didn't want to hear it. So it's organizations and people who are like yourself who are willing to hear all topics, hear all sides, and let the person make their own decision. Absolutely. So thank you again. Absolutely. Your topic and your title for yours is Convictions and Consequences. So what is your experience with this? Okay. So I'll, I'll tell you about my case. I was at DLA and again, married. Uh, we just had twins. We, we had uh, going through the struggles of that uh, they were about three years old or so at that time. Um, I had a coworker and there was, it was, it was very friendly, a uh, little bit flirtatious sometimes. And one day it, it went over the line. There was no physical intercourse or penetration, but what there was is there was kissing and touching in my office in the morning. Um, we worked a complete day together, uh, took pictures, laughed and joked. And then came back to the office the afternoon, more kissing and touching. And then when she went home that evening and spoke to her mom and her friends, she says, okay, I've been sexually assaulted. And at that, at that mm-hmm. stage, um, the military isolated me. They moved me from that command. Um, she was uh, pulled in to, to, uh, to do a police report. She uh, secured a lawyer. She decided she wanted to sue the military. Um, ironically enough, she decided she wanted to sue the military, but she did not want to sue me. And she refused to sign the uh, police report. She had spoken with her attorney. Um, We speculate because in her uh, statement, she says that it was consensual. Um, She said that, hey, the interaction was consensual, but then in her mind, she changed midstream, but that she never said no. She never said stop. She never said quit. She said, I didn't use force. I didn't use coercion. And so she was reluctant to sign. So she, she didn't sign. The investigation goes forward. I've been informed that I, I'm going to go to a preliminary hearing. It's an article 32 where we get to hear evidence. At that article 32, we find out that you have a government lawyer who's telling people not to testify in my, on my, on my behalf. Um, and you have evidence that we're being denied. They're saying, Hey, you, you can't get action to that evidence. And so then that happens. It gets referred to court martial. We go to court martial and I choose a trial by jury. It's a panel in the military. Um, at that time, they, they select the people who are going to be on the panel. And I voluntarily agree to testify on my own behalf. And I'll tell you, Tabitha, I now understand why people don't testify on their own behalf. It's because lawyers are reluctant 
to let people go on the stand. But what I want people to imagine is, is someone saying negative things about you and you just hearing that without having an answer. And so I wanted to get in front of the panel. And I think one of the starkest things that she said to that panel was she claimed that I didn't raise her pencil skirt. She didn't raise her pencil skirt, that it flew up in the air automatically. And when it flew up in the air automatically, it caused her legs to open and it caused her to straddle me in a chair and open mouth, kiss me. But in her mind, she, she didn't really want to. Um, and that was her signal that she didn't want to. Um, I was charged with seven counts of, of sexual assault based on those two incidents. I got up, I testified on my own behalf, and the panel in a military court-martial can ask you questions. So they asked me, they said, well, why would she, she do this? And I said, well, I don't know. I can't speculate, but I can if you'd like me to. And the judge allowed it. And I said, well, prior to our engagement, uh, she had complained because she was dating men and they didn't want long-term commitments from her, that her friends were getting you know, married and getting engaged and having children. But the men that she was seeing would see her for a little bit and then leave. So her self-esteem was low. So what I did was I encouraged her. I said, well, you, you have to find the best portion of yourself and you have to keep going out there. And that's how I think the, it turned to attraction. It was, I was positive. I was supportive. And I think when you have someone positive and supportive in your life and you don't have that, I think it can be very attractive. And she mm -hmm. also had uh, money challenges. And so again, it came up that, Hey, my, my attorney asked, well, why would you sue the military? And you, you wouldn't sue him if, if he did this. And there was no answer. And my lawyer told me, well, there's evidence that you'd get that you won't get here if, if, that's, if that were the case. So the result of that trial was they found me not guilty of six of the seven specifications of sexual assault. They found me guilty of one. And then they came back during sentencing uh, when my accuser made another, they call it an inconsistent statement. Uh, you, you can't say lie in a courtroom. You can't say lie for some reason. Um, and they asked to revoke that guilty verdict. They said, Hey, can we revoke that guilty verdict during sentencing? And the judge said, well, why? And so they, they said, well, you know, they can't disclose jury deliberations, but what ended up coming out was, Hey, more inconsistent statements. And the answer was she'd been making those the whole trial. So, you know, why was that the straw that broke the camel's back? Unfortunately, the, um, the military judge could have declared a mistrial, uh, she, but she did not. She didn't choose to do that. Um, so again, they asked. She said no. They go back. They also found me guilty of violating a general order. And the judge even stated, hey, there was no evidence that he, he did this. Uh, and it turns out later, they didn't even have a copy of the general order they found me guilty of. Uh, of course, they, they found me guilty of conduct on becoming an officer. That's kind of a catch-all, soliciting someone other than your wife. And, and so from there, my lawyer, my lawyer went back to the panel to ask, Hey, you, you, you showed hesitation in finding this guy guilty of this at the end, would you be willing to write a letter? So at that time they, they said, yes, they'd be willing to write a letter. Some of them did enough to overturn the conviction. When the judge got wind of it, she issued an illegal order, basically telling them, Hey, you can't do this and you can't do this. And basically tab that everything that you can't do but she never said what they could do. And so 
that it's an illegal order because in order for her to issue that order, someone has to request it. So we objected. My, my attorney objected. Uh, and this is post-trial. And she asked the prosecutor to ask for the order that she had already uh, she'd already written and what we believe in an attempt to silence the panel. So that's what she does. Um, so after that happens, we had at least one of them who still wrote a letter. So at this point in a military trial, it goes to convening authority. That's a general or flag officer. And the military lost the letter. They said, hey, we didn't get one. And the only reason we were able to know that we did is because uh, the person eventually sent a copy. That person, the convening authority, could have ordered a new trial. I said, okay, if you don't believe me, let's order a new trial. My attorney said they don't want to do that because all of those inconsistent statements, you're going to have that on record. And that person's not going to want to testify again. I would tell you that the panel did not send me to jail one day. They did give me a dismissal, which is the officer equivalent of a dishonorable discharge. Um, so I was forced to then register as a sex offender. So then the convening authority uh, signs off on the verdict. Uh, then I have to register. I'm, I'm discharged from the military. And then there's an appeal process. Because of the discharge, I get to go from the Navy to the Navy Marine Corps Criminal Court of Appeals. So the Navy Marine Corps Criminal Court of Appeals, they, they do the appeal. And here's what they say. Just because the panel said that they didn't want to over uh, that, that they wanted to overturn the case, it doesn't mean they did. It doesn't mean just because they said they wanted to write letters doesn't mean they do. They said it's like the check is in the mail. And so we, we go wait. So what they did order was they looked at one of the charges and instead of insufficiency of evidence, the one where they found me guilty of the general order, they said, well, we'll throw that out because they didn't even get a copy of it. But I said, OK, what about a new trial? What about the sexual assault charge? They wouldn't touch it. So what they did do is they ordered a new convening authorities action where the convening authority could have looked at it again and set it aside, ordered a new trial, do various things. But at that time, the political climate was such that the military was pressuring, pressured to get sexual assault convictions. So obviously they didn't do it. And then that's when we found out that he did get a letter, but they lost it, but they magically found it. And there were three letters. And I would tell you, Tabitha, one of the, he didn't even like me. One of the guys, he was like, look, I don't even like this guy. I still want him out. But he didn't sexually assault this person. So, so think about it. It's like this panel, they, they didn't like me, right? And so he still upheld the conviction. And the Navy went a step further and wrote a letter asking the Court of Appeals not to review my case. So I asked my attorney about that. He said, that's extremely rare. He said, they do not want the things that happen in your case to come out is the, the ramifications on what they did as far as restricting evidence, as far as how they put together a panel uh, and what it looks like compared to what a civilian does, because they basically pre-screen the pool in a certain way. And I can go into that more. So what happens is I become a sex offender. Uh, I become suicidal at that point. Uh, so if you can imagine this for a second. You've gotten one speeding ticket in your life. You join the military, you're, you know, you're, you're doing really well, and now you're a registered sex offender. And let me talk about being a registered sex offender a little bit. In some states, they put a sign in your yard that says you're a sex offender. In some states, they pass out flyers or they mail them to your neighbors. Uh, they send out emails. 
you have third party sites that go to the re- registry and they put you your information out there. In this country, Tabitha, a sex offender is killed every month. Now that includes in jail because there's a hierarchy among criminals. So when a sex offender or someone with that designation, I should say, is sent to jail, people go, well, I'm going to kill him. Or people will randomly come to their house because they experienced some trauma, legitimate trauma when they were children or adults, and they want to take revenge on someone. And maybe the person who did whatever they did to them is not available anymore. So they go and they kill the person. So every time you look out your door, um, you can't go to schools. You can't go to your kids' schools. No Little League, no Boy Scouts, no Cub Scouts. You get treated like a pariah. You're, you are ostracized. Your family is ostracized. And then comes you trying to get employment. So you put out resumes and things like that. You try and work your network to get gainful employment. And people don't want you around. And I'll tell you why. And, and, and this, is, this is for the employers because I did have some really good employers that, that did take the time to talk to me. They say it's liability protection. They go, okay, we believe you. We've seen the evidence. You've shown us. They said, but what about our customers? If our customers find out we, we employed you, they're going to quit coming to us. Or they've said, what happens if you got to work late one day and someone sees your registry listing and they decide to make false allegations? And then they go and our liability insurance is like, wait a minute, you knew this guy was on the registry and you hired him anyway? And they were like, well, yeah. They said, so we have to protect ourselves. And then you also have certifications. You know, if you want to do something technical, they usually have a body that will certify you. So you contact them and you said, hey, here's my situation. And they won't exactly answer, Tabitha. They'll say, well, you can do the training and then you'll get evaluated to see if we will certify you. But you say, well, well, here's my situation. Will you certify someone like this? And they won't tell you formally, but on the side, someone says, well, well, no. In fact, Tabitha, I talked to a friend of mine who, who, you know, several who, who tried to help. And in that particular job, if you had murdered someone, if you had killed someone and served your time, they would hire you. But if you were a sex offender, they would not. Is it companies have policies? Some of them are are uh, outspoken. Some of them are are kind of just known. So you deal with that. So like I said, I'm suicidal. I can't find a job, and I had come up with a plan to to how I was going to end my life. I will tell you, uh, my wife was incredible. She still supported me. Still mm-hmm. stayed with me. Um, she would put our there were three, like I said at the time, in my hands. Because I never articulated what I was going to do. I was thinking about how to do it. I wasn't going to do it in the house. I was going to go rent a hotel room. I was like, why get your house dirty? Why not do it here? Um, But prior to, and and while I was doing this, I also reached out to the media. And they didn't want to touch that side of the story. They kept coming back with, what about the victims? And I said, well, the victims would want this. Because they don't want false accusers to blight their experience, right? They would want this. And I would tell people, I said, okay, you know, you've had an ex before. Maybe most people have had an ex and there was things you liked about them. And then there may have been things you loved about them. Right. But then the other thing was maybe your ex had some negative characteristics too. Right. So it's, if those negative characteristics came out and they said some things or whatever, what about that? 
And so, like I said, there were few people who would listen, but for many of them, they were conflicted. I found out from a lot of my female friends, they were like, they had had experiences that they had never shared, dates that had escalated. Uh, and like I said, my best story with that was I talked to a 30-year rape crisis counselor and I showed her my, my information and she started crying, Tabitha, and she hugged me. And she says, you didn't do it. She says, in 30 years, I've talked to so many people where it was true that I'm so sorry that this happened to you. And I get a little misty thinking about that. And I get misty to think about that is because there are still good people out there. There are still good people that do the right thing because it's just the right thing to do. There's nothing they gain from it personally, but they want to do the right thing again because it's the right thing to do. So again, I, I, I kept going to my politicians and things like that to try and get help uh, while I was struggling. Uh, you experience a depression that you've never known. You get picked for extra inspections. You get harassed in ways that it's hard for me to put in words. I get, like I said, emotional now thinking about all of those experiences you have. Um, they put a special marker on your license if you're a sex offender. Uh, in Virginia, where I live, they give you a reduced uh, number of years. It's accessible. But when someone looks you up, it's, it's one of the first things that pops up. Um, I had a neighbor that came to me. And he is retired military. And again, m- many of my neighbors were incredible. Like many of the ones I knew, I should say, were incredible. The ones I did not, not, not so incredible, not at all. But the ones who were former military go, Hey, I heard about it. I know you didn't do this. I'm so sad that happened to you. And they hugged me and they supported me and they go, look, there was pressure. There was pressure to get convictions. And so you're like, but that doesn't make it right. I go, we were taught honor, courage, commitment. We were taught the military is a place about justice, about the right thing. And so how can, how can they do stuff like this? And so Time goes on. And like I said, I, I contacted very media, various media outlets, but they didn't want to, to entertain the story. And so I said, I wonder if there's others like me. And so I started reaching out and I found others like me. And, you know, th- there was a Navy SEAL who was falsely accused. And this gave me hope because in his case, he was falsely accused, put in solitary confinement. They wouldn't give him his his medication. This guy had served for our country, served overseas combat deployments, and he was getting treated like a pariah in jail even. And he was eventually let go of prison. He was homeless. So his situation worse than mine. He was homeless. He couldn't find a job. In fact, his quote is he couldn't find a job driving for Uber, right? You can obviously understand why Uber would not want a situation where someone who did do something uh, with their with their customers, he was living on people's sofa and on the kindness of friends. But what happened in his story is that a whistleblower came forward, a whistleblower that worked in the office of the convening authority, who who basically stated that even though they believe this guy was innocent, there was pressure to get the conviction. And when the convening authority wanted to overturn the conviction, which he could, he was told not to do it or he was advised not to do it, that it would embarrass the Navy. And so his, he got attorneys uh, through friends and they reached out to this now retired convening authority. And 
he, he, he validated that story. He said, that's true. He wrote an affidavit. The Navy brought uh, him back on active duty, as well as the former, uh, the, the higher ranking officer who had told him that. And he admitted he was worried about what Congress would do. He was worried about uh, what what the military would do to him or the reputation of the of the Navy at that time. And so that's why he didn't do it. And he apologized. And because he wrote that, he was granted a new uh, appellate action. The appellate court, higher than the service court, the, the CAF, gave him a review and they overturned his case. But the military was upset that he had done that. They thought about taking it to the Supreme Court. They, they did not do that. And his case was overturned. He was reinstated. He was allowed to retire honorably. But I would tell you to this day, he still is impacted by what happened to him. When someone compares being a sex offender to combat, and, and, and in some cases worse than that, you really have to think about that for a second. But what that did was it inspired me to reach out to others. Um, I found several others also falsely accused. The first one, in, in his case, it was his ex-wife. She had had an extramarital affair, got pregnant by the person. He, he discovered this and divorced her and, and received custody of their daughter. So after he receives custody of their daughter, she files sexual assault charges against him. He says, I didn't do this. So the local police won't file charges. They investigate. They said, there's no evidence. We don't believe you. The prosecutor won't go forward. So she goes to the military. So the military says, we'll take the case. Again, they're receiving pressure. But she says, I'll drop the charges if he gives me custody of the daughter. So he says, no. So he takes it to court. He fights. He loses. He gets found guilty, gets sent to jail. His mother talking to uh, the man who had the affair with his now ex-wife has a recorded conversation with the person where he admits he received $10,000 and he lied in court from the, his ex-wife's family. So she takes that, goes to the military, comes to D.C. She's, she's you know, trying to support her son and the, the military orders, I believe it's a debate hearing, another hearing to hear the evidence. And he gets on the stand and Tabitha, he admits it wasn't ten thousand. He got a hundred thousand dollars, and he lied in court. So they're flabbergasted. So the judge decides, wow. well, I can't admit this as evidence. So the question I would ask is, why would you have a hearing to hear evidence that you couldn't submit? So the judge elects not to submit that as evidence. This person goes to jail. Mm -hmm. Obviously, doesn't get to see his daughter. He. You know, he goes to jail. He, he goes through the, the various turmoils and, and, and tribulations. Also, every one of these men have had suicidal ideations that I'm talking about. So just understand that. He gets out, goes to his congressperson. He's fighting. And then the military changes their story. Mm -hmm. They said, well, the judge could have submitted his evidence, but they used their discretion not to. He pushes for an IG investigation, various other things. And then they go and then he has to file. He files a federal lawsuit. But the thing most people don't understand about federal lawsuits is the Department of Justice defends uh, DOD in those cases, and they're very, very powerful. So then they change the story and mm -hmm. says, well, okay, he could have submitted it, but he didn't. Now it's, well, he submitted it too late. So again, I asked the question, Tabitha, why have a hearing to hear evidence that you believe was submitted too late that the judge couldn't use as evidence? So they keep changing their story and no one will listen. Another story of a man who didn't want to come forward. His wife was also having an affair. 
He returned two weeks from deployment early because he thought she was having an affair, and she was. They go to counseling, and he wants to stay together. He wants to save his marriage, but he's breaking down. But he's skeptical that she's going to be truthful. So he sets up a still camera in their shared bedroom. And do you know what he finds, Tabitha? And I'm getting emotional thinking about this, so I apologize. She is, have, she is having an affair with another person. It's another person besides the other person when he was on deployment. So he still wants to make the marriage work. He still wants to do this. Um, they go to counseling, but they decide to get divorced. The still picture comes up when there's a uh, custody dispute. She immediately goes to the military. And, and the law that I believe was used was the voyeurism law. So think peeping Tom. The military said, well, it's, it's a, a violation because you set that camera up for sexual purposes, right? To see your wife and someone else. In, when he, and he's taken a court martial. And in that court martial, he's not allowed to say, well, my wife was having an affair. And actually, she still was having an affair. He's not allowed to use that as his defense, even though the military knows that there's evidence of that. She obviously not punished for that. And he's found guilty. He's sent to jail. He's discharged dishonorably. He's made to register as a sex offender. And, and that's his story. And that guy did not want to come forward at first because he was embarrassed. Many, many of the men are embarrassed. I've talked to many who won't come forward. They're embarrassed. They assume people won't believe them. They assume they'll get attacked. Um, yet, yet another story of someone. He is dating uh, or he goes out with one of his uh, co-workers who's married. Now she is married to another man. She goes to his house. They, they have sex. Uh, her husband finds out. He threatens to expose her to her family. So she says, hey, I was sexually assaulted. He goes, I didn't, right? It, there's a preliminary hearing in Article 32 where he presents evidence, text messages that, hey, you know, look, th- guess what? It goes to a four-star general and his whole chain of command, the four-star general says, hey, this didn't happen. They lack, the, the person lacks credibility. He transfers to another command. The other command goes forward with no new evidence, but just the fact that he was accused. He gets found guilty, gets sent to prison, uh, dishonorably discharged, and has to register as a sex offender. And again, there are many stories like that. Uh, It's typically an ex. It's someone who had a fiance who found out, and then they come forward. And here's really some of the troubling things that that really make you wonder is there was a point, Tabitha, where one of the vice chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff wrote an official letter to Congress where he stated, we are getting convictions in cases that civilians won't take to court. Civilian police won't charge it. Prosecutors won't charge it. And they're getting a high rate of conviction. But you know what? No one in that in that room asked him, Tabitha? Probably if any of them are actually innocent. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, or how? Mm-hmm. How are you getting convictions in cases where civilians don't even have enough evidence to go forward? He's challenged by a, um, a nonprofit advocacy group for, for true victims, and he quickly resigns. And then the then Secretary of Defense doubles down and writes a letter and said, we are getting these convictions in cases at a very high level. But again, never answers the question how. So literally, 
in cases, we've heard of cases where they threw out DNA evidence that would have exonerated the person. We've heard of cases where the DNA evidence didn't, uh, didn't point to his, his, uh, his involvement and they still found a way to contort it. So they, they did get a conviction. They withheld evidence. It's how they put the juries together. It's, it's evidence. In fact, it got to a point where Congress, they, there was an investigation done. And the, the, the title of the report for your readers who would like to look at it, and I, I can give you a copy if you'd like, or they can search for it. It was called Report on the Barriers to the Fair Administration of Military Justice and Sexual Assault Cases. I want you to think about it. The barriers to the fair administration of justice and just those cases. So well, what does that mean? There was a time where the military had a policy. If you had one drink, one alcoholic beverage, you couldn't consent to sex. There was a policy where if a convening authority, a general officer didn't take a case to court martial, it went up to a higher military officer or their service secretary. And there was, they call it the perception that they would send a case and do everything they could to get a conviction. They interviewed agents who said, we can't do, in fact, all of the agents said this, we can't do thorough investigations of the accusers. And they're denying us access to their electronic devices, so we can't do complete investigations. In fact, there was a recommendation that they, they changed the uh, National Defense Authorization Act to make some changes with that. Now, but here's what they didn't do, Tabitha. What about all the cases that were impacted mm -hmm. by those rules, mm -hmm. right? Why not go back and take a look at them and see? Tabitha, we have a retired NCIS agent. We actually have two retired NCIS agents who looked through our cases to make sure we were, we were being on the up and up. We have a couple of former retired JAG officers, military attorneys, look at the cases and they're helping us quietly, right? And literally some of them have gone to military leaders and they don't get answers, right? There's no answer. It's what I perceive is that the military was pressured by Congress to get results. There was a threat to take away their authority. So how do you get someone to let you keep your authority? You show them that you can get convictions in cases that civilians could not. So if you give these to the civilians, you may not get convictions in these cases, but if you keep it in the commander's authority, they will. Mm -hmm. You have services that your record in sexual assault cases is part of your evaluation. If you want to be promoted to a certain level, they review how you've handled sexual assault cases. No other cases, just sexual assault cases. And again, I go back to the, the case of the Navy SEAL so he admits that he was pressured. Tabitha, how many other cases did that guy adjudicate where he also was pressured? They didn't investigate any of them. Mm -hmm. In fact, they just, they just hunkered down and they got very, very quiet about it. And so that's kind of the background that we find ourselves in. I, I'll share one more story, if I could, about another person. Yeah. It's that person meets someone at a party. Um, they hit it off, they go back in the room, and they're having sex. And while they're having sex, she is she is on top of him. She's riding him. And her best friend is in the room. Her best friend is in the room. 
And she decides to leave when the young lady is, is orgasming, right? Someone else comes into the room, they shoo them away. So in the court proceeding, the, the young lady's asked, basically her fiance found out about the sex. And then six months later, she filed the sexual assault charges. Is, wait a minute, why wouldn't you, you could have just gotten up. Why couldn't you, why didn't you get up? She won't answer. Um, you know, you could have, nothing. And and I said that would be my last one, but I have one more that's very egregious that I think people with kids can relate to. We have a, a guy who was a former prosecutor. He prosecuted these cases. He was the head prosecutor at a base. He spoke out against what the military was doing. And then his ex-wife accused him. I believe there was some custody challenges to se- of sexual assault. But the difference is she said that he was sexually assaulting his daughter via something called tickle torture that he was tickling her in a sexual manner. I kid you not. In the presence of a social worker. So even though the social worker testified that that wasn't the case, he still got found guilty. He still got sentenced to prison. And the thing, the connection I'd like to make with your audience is this. I spoke to someone just yesterday about this in a social organization who's well aware that it happens And they said, Arvis, it's spreading. They're using the same tactics on other cases now. And I said, well, can you share with me that? And it was a mother um, and it was a CPS investigation. They were going to send her to jail for nine years. There was no evidence, but they they were making things in a way where they were assured to get the conviction and the local attorneys wouldn't help her. So two or three civic organizations, social justice organizations came to her assistance And she was able to to get those charges dismissed. So what I tell you is our our focus, our our website, if if I can mention it, is www.wouldyou.care, right? And it links to a change.org petition because what we're asking is we understand if you don't believe us all the way. We're asking for an independent review outside of the military with civilians to look at the evidence and then and then make a judgment based on that, is that that's what you're saying. You're saying, imagine a situation where your daughter would be believed, but your son would not be. And you think about the military and the moms and the dads who send their kids to the military. And if you know your kid's not going to be treated fairly, if you know they can be falsely accused, if you know they could live life on the registry and things like that, would you send your kids there? And on a, sem- on a semi-positive front, we started the change.org petition. Again, um, the link's a little hard to describe, but if you go to www.wouldyou.care, there's links to the petition. There's our stories. Some of the moms make comments on the impact. We started in October of 2021. The state of Virginia removed me from the registry. Why is that significant? Because I was on seven years and 10 months. And typically you have to be on 15 years before you petition. They wouldn't say why. They just sent a letter and says, hey, you're off. Wow. And literally we had about 150 signatures. And so we're asking for an independent review of the cases to say, hey, look, look at this. And we have about 400 cases and more people call us. And I know the natural question is, well, how do you evaluate? Here's what we ask. We go, look. Your case, you could be not guilty for technical issues or whatever, but we want something big. We want something that a reasonable person could listen to. 
and go, wait a minute, that that's ridiculous. Go. We went through all this and, you, and I appreciate you telling everything and all the stories and all of these people and families, because this doesn't just affect the convicted. This affects every person that they come in contact with, family members, friends, like you said, employees, neighbors, bosses, every person that is surrounding this person will be affected for the rest of their life. And I think it's interesting to kind of put this out there into listeners' brains. We were raised that you are innocent until you are proven guilty. What happens in that moment that the guilty is only found due to pressure, due to a bigger umbrella that we are not even aware of until now when more people are speaking out that we see this in civilian. Um, I am going to bring her up because everyone seems to be, well, this is civilian and, you know, Kim Kardashian was the number one celebrity, so to speak, that went to law school to help the wrongfully convicted. So why is it socially acceptable to speak about wrongfully convicted for civilians just because we have celebrities and their platform signing petitions and making this something that, hey, you know what, this does happen. But yet when it comes to the military, we are not to speak about it because that's an even bigger umbrella that we need to be protecting those that are protecting us. You signed something, you gave your life, you're protecting our country. So what are we doing for the wrongfully convicted to help them in return? Because now we are on the outside. We have a voice. We are able to speak up and provide that petition, provide all that information for the public to do their research. The public is actually a lot stronger than we think we are, especially now with everything going on. The more you do research, the more you actually look into something and educate yourself. Like I said in the beginning, you're actually going to learn what is really going on. And it's something that we are socially acceptable, allowed to talk about. There's nothing wrong with talking and sharing stories. And like I said, I will put all of your stuff in the bio, um, your website, your Facebook. I highly encourage listeners, whether you are, I agree or I disagree, go look at it, go do your research. Every person is different. We all have our opinions. And that's the most blessed thing about it is start talking to each other. I'm going to put this on the Facebook podcast, communicate, talk, see, comment, and let's see if like I said, do your research. See if maybe, yeah, you know what? I kind of turned my decision on listening to this. Or no, I'm just, I'm steadfast and I agree with what I agree with. Even when the military looks at these cases and overturns the conviction, your life is still impacted because there will always be people who still believe that you did that. There will be threats on your life. Every time you look at the door, you have that burning sensation in your stomach. Is this, is this a vigilante to take me out? Is this when you apply for a job? Hey, you made the military look bad. I don't want to hire. So, so literally your life is impacted for the rest of it, regardless. I think it's important when we're wrapping this episode up to sit here as you're listening to this and maybe you need to go back and replay it and listen to it again. Um, I'm a huge advocate for podcasts that are on touchy subjects to listen to it the first time, get your opinion. Then go back and replay it and then actually listen to the details and see if your opinion is going to stay the same at the end or it will change. Put yourself in the shoes of these individuals. It could be you. It could be your spouse. It could be your brother. It could be your father. It could be someone that's very close to you. Would you want to allow someone to be wrongfully convicted and sit and wait for a possibility or would you want to be their voice? And that's why we're here today. It's about justice. It's about convictions. And it's about those consequences after that conviction. Because like I said, he has a petition. I will put all that information in the bio. Go do your research. Go become more educated on this. This is something that has been occurring 
for quite a long time. But now it's to the point where we're allowing it to be acceptable to talk about. It's not scary. It's not taboo. It's something that's happening. And it's we were all raised to know the difference between right and wrong. And that's why we're here talking about this. today. Thank you. Thank you. That's all we ask. Again, I thank you so much for coming on, sharing not only your story, because it is being vulnerable about things that you have been through. And also being that voice for so many people that feel that they're all alone. And like you said, the more you research, the more you talk to others, you're not alone. And there's so many listeners that maybe they'll have family that's going through this, a friend, their spouse, their brother, their sister. So I will put all of your information in the bio so everyone can not only do their research, but also ask you questions. You're very knowledgeable. You're very welcoming. You're very understanding. So I highly suggest if you know someone or have questions or, you know, you're just on that side where you're like, I need to know more, reach out. I wish only the best for this whole endeavor because it involves so many. And like you said, there's so many more out there. It's just learning to have that voice and that it's okay to speak up and know the difference between right and wrong. It's okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in with me and spending your time hanging out. Hopefully you enjoyed today's podcast and a special thank you to all our sponsors. Make sure to check them out. If you have any tips or topics, feel free to email me at littlebitoflifecast at gmail.com or you can also reach out to me on Instagram at littlecute1az. You never know if your topic will be next. Be sure to join me again for another episode of Little Bit of Life. Until next time, stay positive, stay blessed.